Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Welcome to all of us, uh, our church family and Boardman, TCI, and our church community online. We're excited to be with you. It's good to be here in Warren. My name's Ryan. I get to serve as our next-gen pastor at the Warren campus. Really, really excited to conclude our series today called Searching. And this series has been really a powerful uh, an insightful series, helping us to understand what we're actually searching for and how to find our fulfillment in those things. And today I'm excited to be able to take this topic to the next point in our series by looking at the most searched topics. Uh, what we did is we just tried to take a few and really we picked three of the most searched things in 2022, having to do with God or theology or having just to do with people's desire to know more. And so we took these things and we said, let's try and give some answers for these most searched questions. And honestly, the undergirding theme of all of this that I hope that you can catch, but I'm gonna say it explicitly as well, is that we want church to be a place where you can process your questions. We want church to be a safe place for you to question and doubt and have things that you're wondering about. And in fact, my thought is, I could be wrong about this. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. My thought is, that if we don't have any questions about God, we're probably not gonna continue to grow. It is questions or it is curiosity, is that desire to know more that actually drives us to seek God more and more. And so we want church to be a place. We want connect groups to be a place. We want this body to be a place where you can come and ask the hard questions, whether they're emotionally difficult or whether they're intellectually difficult. We wanna be a place where we can ask these questions together. And so with that backdrop, we're gonna jump into the first question that we have. And this was actually the most searched question about God in 2022 with seven and a half million searches per month. And it was this, what is love? What is love? Now I have to guess that out of seven and a half million, a few of those, few thousand of them were probably devoted every month to that song. What is love? Baby, don't hurt. Uh, there have to be a few devotees. I don't even know who that song's by, but I would say that most of these probably have to do with something much bigger, much more important, which is really the concept of love itself. And to be honest, when I saw this question, I was tempted to skip it because I was like, you know, it doesn't feel like that big of a question. What is love? It seems kind of generic. Is there really a burning question in there? But this was by far the most searched question. It was three times more searched than any other question. And it got me thinking, well, maybe there's a reason people are searching on Google for what love is. Would we agree that love is a term that is used quite often in our culture? It's a value that we have across the board. Love matters. Love is a big deal. I remember when Kristen and I were dating, and I don't know if this was always true generationally speaking, but I know in my generation, this was definitely true. It was a very big deal when you said, I love you to the person you're dating. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? It's that moment where you're like, you don't wanna say it too early because then you come across as like needy and emotionally unaware, but you don't wanna wait too late either, you know, because then you're just kind of distant and removed. And it's just this whole tension and challenge. Maybe this didn't exist for generations previous to us, but this was just the reality. And so I remember Krista and I were about a month into dating and we were uh, saying goodnight for the night and we were about to separate and be apart. And, and I remember as I was saying goodbye to her, these words just came out of my mouth. Hey, goodnight, I see you later, I love you. And both of our eyes got real big because we realized what I just said. 
And in that moment, I'm thinking, do I commit to this and say, yeah, yeah, I mean it. Or do I say, ah, sorry, that was an accident, right? You don't know what to do. And so I don't even remember what I did. I just remember that I can't believe I just said that. And I was probably bright red. And I don't even remember what she said in return. I was just concerned, like, just get me home. I just need to, I need to, you know. But love is a big deal. It's a big deal. We talk about love all the time, right? We, we talk about the value of love. We say, all you need is love. You know, we need to spread the love. We make love. We talk about love is love. Love is just a big deal. And yet I find it so interesting that as much as we talk about love, I don't necessarily see it represented in the world around us. And I, I get to work with young people a lot. That's, that's my favorite thing to do is to be around young people. And in a world where they've been taught from the youngest of age to be kind, and we've been taught to love one another, it's been this permeation around us is just this idea, this concept of love. I don't see it. I don't see it in the way we relate to one another. I don't see it in the way that social media has taught us to interact. I don't, I don't see it. And so maybe this search for love is a little deeper than we really think. Maybe there's a reason we're looking to Google to find out what love is because we're not seeing it embodied around us. And I just want you to know, if you're searching for love, if you want to be loved, if you want to love, I want you to know that that is a high value to God as well. That is a godly desire on the inside of you. Even if you don't believe God exists, the fact that you love love is a good thing. That's actually something that God wired you to feel. And this is a really sobering verse I'm about to read to you, but it's, it's an important verse, I think for every Christian for every believer in God to, to reflect on. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the famous love passage. It's quoted at almost every wedding you ever go to. But I wanna frame it today in our conversation in such a powerful way. Here's what it says. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge. And if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Skipping ahead to verse 13. These three things will last forever, forever faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Everything we do, every gift we're given, every talent we possess, every good thing that comes out of our life, if the foundation of it, if the why behind it is not love, then to God, it is not meaningful. To God, it is not purposeful. The thing that connects what you are doing to purpose in your life is love. Love is the foundation which means literally right now, as I get up here and speak to you, as great as I hope to be, if I don't love you, then God doesn't care about what I have to say. Love is important to God. It is vitally important to God. And there's actually something that helps us understand why it's so important to God. Look at what 1 John 4, 8 says. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In his very nature, God is love. And long before creation, long before angels and demons existed, God loved. He was love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit loved each other eternally for all of eternity. 
And this is the God we serve. And so I want you to know, as you search for love, I want you to know the reason I believe that love is a deep need inside of you is because God wired you to love and to be loved. He made you for this. You were made for love. And yet what I've discovered is it's not just that we don't understand what love is, it's oftentimes we don't understand how we are giving our love to things that we hope will give us what we want in the deepest places of our being, but they cannot give us what we're hoping for. We love things in a misordered way. And really that's kind of what idolatry is. If you think about idolatry, idolatry is just simply misordered love. And most of the times in our modern context, when we think of idolatry, we think of idols and these really bad things. But the truth is the greatest temptations for idolatry in our life are not the bad things, they're actually the good things. Because the good things are the things that you can be tempted to believe, if I will just give my life to this, then it will satisfy me in the deepest parts of who I am. And so we make our wife or our, our kids, we make that our idol. And so we say, this will become my number one priority. I will love them with my central, the center part of who I am. They will become it. Or we will take our sports team and we will love them with the greatest love that we possibly can, hoping that they will give us what they're not capable of giving us, which is the deepest satisfaction. You know, when you think about the New Testament, the New Testament talks about love with a few different words. It talks about storge, which is like affection. It's the type of affection you'd see between a, a mom and a child or the affection you might feel for your dog. Uh, it's just an affection. It's a pleasant type of love. There's, there's this love called philia. It's the brotherly love. It's a friendship kind of love. There's eros, which is the intimate kind of romantic love, which God created, by the way. These are these loves that are so good because they're things that God created, but when they are used wrongly, when they are misproportioned or misordered, they become things that can actually destroy us. In fact, if you were to think about how our culture has said, if you wanna find satisfaction in life, then you need to find eros love, intimate, erotic love. That's what you need. That's the thing that will satisfy you. And so as a culture, we have expanded this and we've said, everybody needs this. And if they don't have this, they will not live a thriving functional life. And God is saying, no, it's a good thing, but it's good thing within boundaries. Look what you see, what God says about it in Proverbs 5, 15. He says, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? What's he saying? He's saying hookup culture is not gonna help you find love. Hookup culture is not gonna get you there. You think freedom is just doing whatever you want, but freedom is the ability to say no to the wrong so you can say yes to the good. God creates boundaries with love because he actually cares about us. Anything that we love more than God becomes an idol and anything that becomes an idol can never give us what we hope it will. God is the only one we can love who will actually satisfy us in the deepest part of who we are. And by the way, this is why Jesus says, if you love your own life, you will lose your life. But if you're willing to lose your life, you'll truly find it. If you're willing to give me your life, you'll find it. And my favorite love to talk about is the agape love. This is the final love the New Testament talks about. This is a self-giving love. This is the type of love that loves someone who doesn't deserve it who loves someone who isn't worthy of it. 
It's a sacrificial embodied love for others. And you know what? This is the type of love that Christians are called to embody to the world. Look at what the scriptures say. They say, we all know John 3.16, but check out 1 John 3.16. It says, we know what real love is. So if you wanna know what real love is, here you go. Real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Maybe part of the problem of why the world has not really connected the dots about what love is, is that the church has not to fulfill their place as a city on a hill who is loving the world who doesn't deserve it in a way that Jesus loved us who didn't deserve it. I don't know if you know this, but the most popular verse in the church for the first 300 years of the church was not John 3:16, for God so loved the world. That's a great verse. But the John 3:16 of the early church, you wanna know what it was? It was Matthew 5, 44, which said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That was their John 3:16. That was quoted 26 times by 10 of the early church fathers. Why? Because they knew if, that, it was, if they were going to be like Jesus, they needed to love their enemies, the people who didn't deserve it. And it is only through agape love, self-sacrificial love that our enemies become our neighbors. And this is what we've been called to. We've called to be a city on a hill, to embody Jesus to the world who needs to see him. Because guess what? Jesus right now, He's not in a visible way here on earth. We can't see him with our physical eyes. And so who did Jesus make his visible uh, representation here on the earth? You and I, the church. And so when we love in a sacrificial way, those who don't deserve it, those who are our enemies, we are revealing love to the world. So what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Okay, here we go. Question number two. Here's the second question. The second most searched question in 2022 is who is Jesus? And I threw in there really, because I think that's an important question. You know, in 1985, there was this uh, man named Robert Funk, not to be confused with my eighth grade baseball coach named Bobby Funk, uh, but there was this guy named Robert Funk who created this thing called the Jesus Seminar. It was a gathering of hundreds of scholars and their goal was to figure out who Jesus actually was. They were trying to figure out, you know, there's so much worship of Jesus. There's probably so much mythology around Jesus. Let's get to the bottom of who Jesus was. And so they got together and they began to use the best historical critical methods that they could to really figure out who is this Jesus that the whole world is worshiping. And what they discovered was really interesting. At the end of their, at the end of their study, they put out the five gospels. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the gospel of Thomas, which was actually written in the second century, but they put all of these out and then they said, okay, we're gonna put all of the things Jesus actually said in red. All the things that are historically accurate in red. And what came out was shocking. Only about 20% of the New Testament, only about 20% of the New Testament gospels actually reflected historical Jesus. In other words, about four fifths, 80% of what we read about Jesus was just complete mythology. This is a big deal, right? Because if you're a Christian and you've devoted your life to somebody, who did you actually devote your life to? Because what they discovered was that Jesus was not the son of God. He was not this uh, person that was actually claiming to be that. He was just a social critic. He was an itinerant preacher. And somehow when he died, his whole crew got confused and he, he was just laying in a grave somewhere. Dogs probably ate his body. And if you've ever watched the History Channel, 
Or if you've ever been on YouTube for like 30 seconds, in fact, I was on YouTube this morning, very spiritual. I was on YouTube this morning and I saw literally somebody saying, who is the real Jesus? If you watch the History Channel, if you watch TikTok for long enough, you will have these questions of who is Jesus? Is he real? Is he actually who Christians worship? Because this is a big deal, right? If Jesus isn't God, but it's just some itinerant preacher or social critic, he doesn't deserve my worship and he doesn't deserve yours. And so as we think about things like the Jesus seminar, which would seek to debunk the idea of the real Jesus, um, one thing that we have to know is something called presuppositions, okay? So I, I wanna tell you just a little bit about some of the presuppositions that this crew had, but I wanna explain what a presupposition is first, okay? So a presupposition is, a, it is something that you believe that interprets how you want, or it, it changes how you interpret the evidence you see. It's something you've already decided upon before you see the evidence, and therefore you interpret the evidence through that. The best way I could describe this is the man who thought he was dead. Okay, so there's this guy who thinks he's dead. He's probably watching The Sixth Sense and you know, kind of gets all kinds of ideas. And he begins to tell his wife and his friends like, hey, I, I really think I'm dead. And of course his wife you know, was like, no, you're not. But she could not convince him. And day after day he said, man, I don't know. I just, I know I, I'm just dead. I'm a dead man. And so eventually she says, honey, you need to go see a psychiatrist. So she sends him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist tries to unpack it with him and says, how does that make you feel? You know, and he's doing all this stuff, but he's trying to persuade this guy, the guy, you are not dead. You are not dead. But the guy will not listen to any of the persuasion techniques of this, of this psychiatrist. And so eventually a psychiatrist has this idea. He says, okay, I'm gonna prove it to this guy. So what he does is he gets out all this medical literature and he begins to go step-by-step, fact-by-fact, convincing this man that dead people do not bleed. And so he just goes page after page, study after study, document after document, and he begins to say, okay, do you agree with this? And the guy says, yeah, absolutely. And so eventually he convinces this man that dead men do not bleed. And then he pulls out a little pin and he pricks the man's finger and blood begins to rush out of the man's finger. And the psychiatrist very confidently and calmly sits back and says, now, what does this tell us? And the man says, oh my gosh, dead men do bleed. (laughs) What was happening? The man had a presupposition that he was dead. So no amount of evidence would convince him otherwise. And there were many presuppositions that this Jesus seminar had, but one of them, I'll just tell you one of them, was a presupposition of something called naturalism, which is that there are no events that occur outside of natural courses. In other words, there's no supernatural. In other words, there's no miraculous. And so what would you do then if you had a presupposition of naturalism and then you read about a virgin birth and you read about a man who said to have done miracles and you read about someone who was claimed to have been raised from the dead. Before you even evaluate the evidence, you would have disqualified it. And this is what we do with Jesus. We say, well, because it's impossible for people who are dead to come back to life after three days, it couldn't have actually happened. So somebody had to have made it up. And I'm not saying that you should believe every supernatural claim that's out there. In fact, I would recommend not doing that because then you'd have to believe every claim from Muslims and you'd have to believe every claim from Buddhists and you'd have to believe every claim of every religion out there. What do we do when we hear supernatural claims? We weigh the evidence and try and figure out what is actually the best explanation here. But we don't do it with just a presupposition of naturalism. And so 
here's what I wanna do. I wanna just look at one scenario of Jesus' life that I think is the most pivotal part of his supernatural ministry, which is his resurrection. And I wanna try and say, what can we do with this? What can we do with the evidence that is available to us? Here's what I love about Christianity. It's different than Buddhism. It's different than a lot of these things. A lot of these religions, they just claim things, but they have no historical tethering. There's no way to actually verify, did this actually happen? But Christianity is very different. We make very specific historical claims that if proved wrong, completely destroy our arguments. And if you think I'm saying something new, I'm not. Paul said the same thing. He said, look, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, Christians are to be pitied above all people. He said, we're supposed to, you, you, we're gonna die for something that's not even real. We're gonna be persecuted for something that's not even real. We're gonna be forced to change our, our money habits and our sex life. We're gonna have to be changed all this stuff for something that's just completely, it's a fairy tale. Paul said, no, no, no. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then everything we're doing is a waste. And so I wanna just look at the facts for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna use a principle called the bedrock of historical facts. And what I'm gonna present to you right now is just the facts that unanimous are almost unanimously agreed upon by scholars of every kind. So they're not the facts that Christian scholars agree with, but uh, atheist scholars don't agree with. These are the facts that atheist scholars, agnostic scholars, Christian scholars, they all agree with. And then what we have to do is we have to say, what is the best explanation for that? And so here's the first one. Well, okay, I'll, I'll call it question zero or uh, assumption zero is that Jesus existed, okay? If you've ever heard that Jesus wasn't a real person, there's no credible historian who would actually say that. Okay, so that's like fact zero. But here's fact number one. We can see that Jesus died by crucifixion. Okay, so the director of the Jesus Seminar, remember we talked about the Jesus Seminar? The director of the Jesus Seminar said that the fact that Jesus died on a cross is the most sure historical thing that could ever be. So we know that Jesus died by crucifixion. Does that prove he's God? No, but we know that that happened. The second thing we know is that the earliest disciples of Jesus believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Does that mean it's true? No, but we have to take into account that the earliest disciples believed it. You may have heard this thing that, oh, Christianity started as kind of just a nice thing, but eventually hundreds of years later, people started to say things about Jesus where he was raised from the dead. This is not true. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, Paul wrote this in 50 AD, and I'll explain why that's important. He said, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. So in 50 AD, when Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians, he's saying, I just want you to know what I received from people who witnessed it, which is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And if you wanna go find out more, go talk to them because they're still alive. Over 500 of them, most of them are still alive. Paul's saying this, go fact check me. But this is so crucial because it means within five to 10 years of Jesus' death, people who saw him put to death believed that something happened to him that caused him to no longer be dead. The people who saw him on the cross are the same people who were willing to die for him. And so does it prove that Jesus was raised from the dead? No, but we have to take account. What does that actually mean? The third fact is this, it's the conversion of a church persecutor in Paul. It's undeniable that Paul was someone who hated the Christian church, who persecuted them, put them to death. 
and then became an ardent follower and was willing to be put to death for the sake of Christ. What happened? It doesn't prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, but you have to account for it. The fourth is my favorite one. It's the, it's the conversion of a skeptic named James. Those of you who don't know James, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He shared a mom, but not a dad. And, uh, <laughs> and James was, we can read in the gospels, he was actually a skeptic. He, he didn't believe in Jesus. Many of Jesus' own family members didn't. But something happened that caused James to actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, what would it take for your sibling to convince you that they were God? This is why that's my favorite. I love this one because I don't know what my brothers, my brothers are pretty good guys. I don't know that they could convince me of this one. Something happened that caused James to change his mind. And here's the final one. It's not as unanimous as the others, but it is a majority of scholars would agree with this one. It's this, it's an empty tomb. There was something that happened that left the tomb empty. So what happens? You take all of these facts, the historical bedrock that's agreed on by everyone, and then you have to do this. What explains these facts the best? And you'll hear all kinds of things. You'll hear about mass hallucinations, which have never been proved psychologically. You'll hear about people who are lying. You'll hear about all kinds of things. I think the best explanation is that Jesus was really raised from the dead. And if he was really raised from the dead, that changes all of history. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, it actually says in scripture, that this is the proof that he was who he said he was and that God was anointing him. It's proof that he is the only way to God. It's proof that he is the Messiah who will rule and reign forever and conquer death once and for all. So who is Jesus? I think he's God. <laughs> I think he's the king of all the universe. All right, final question. Here's question three. And this one, wasn't on Google, but this was the one as a pastor, I was thinking, you know what, if I could speak to one question I've been asked more, it's this one. And it's just simply this, why didn't my prayer get answered? You know, when you, when you live as a follower of Jesus, you get to see amazing things. I could show you hundreds and hundreds of prayers that I've prayed, that people in my life have prayed that have been answered. And it's, when they get answered, they're like game changers. It's like, it's one of the most joyful experiences you can have when God answers a prayer. But if you walk with God long enough, you will have moments where it feels like, or it seems like, or it actually happens where God seems to answer your prayer with a no or doesn't seem to answer it at all. And in those moments, you watch that person who you prayed for end up passing away. And in those moments, you ask for God to remove something and it wasn't removed. And in those moments, you feel the pain of rejection, of feeling like, is God even real? And I wanna say that this is a really important question. And I wanna give a few caveats into, before I jump into why, what do we do when our prayer doesn't get answered? The first is that you should be thankful that God doesn't answer every prayer you've ever prayed. I would be married like 14 different times to 14 different girls right now if God answered every prayer from my childhood. <laughs> it's actually a great mercy of God to not answer every prayer with a yes. Because you think the thing that you need to solve your situation is money, but you don't realize that if you got more money, it would actually destroy you. Trust me, 70% of people who win the lottery are bankrupt within the first five years and they've destroyed every relationship in their life. It doesn't solve everything you think it does. There are times God in his mercy says, I'm not answering that prayer with a yes. 
The second caveat is that there are times when faith actually requires something called persistent prayer. Jesus tells these parables about times where we need to not just have the one-time faith that says, I'm standing on this and that's it. But there are times you need to come back to God over and over and over, day after day after day, month after month after month, year after year after year, sometimes decade after decade. And there are some things that are only won by persistent faith. And so you think it's a no, but it's actually just a not yet. And why does God do that? I don't wanna speak for him. I do think there are times he needs to change who you are to even become the proper recipient of that prayer. There are a lot of moving parts. The person you're praying for isn't ready now, but in 10 years, they will be. So just keep praying. But what about the times when we pray and just the answer is no? You know, Paul, he prayed that God would remove this thorn in his flesh, which I believe is persecution. When you look at the context surrounding the chapter, I think he's talking about like a demonic persecution. And he three times prays, God, would you take this away from me? And three times God says, no. What God does say is that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And in this moment, we find that there are just times where God might not answer our prayer. And it's not because you didn't have enough faith. It's not because you did something wrong. It's not because you're a bad person. It's because God is a good God who is stewarding all of creation toward his good purposes. And every once in a while, it means that he will make a choice in his wisdom that goes beyond what you can understand. You know, Job, when he is afflicted, we, we get to read why Job's afflicted. We get to see that Satan is the one that's attacking Job. Job didn't get to see it. And you know what? We still have to ask, why did God let Satan attacked Job. That was a lot of loss for Job. And so Job kind of goes through this period where he's questioning God and at the very end, God responds to Job and he doesn't respond by saying why it happened. He responds by saying, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Do you see the little animals that are crying out for food right now? Do you hear their pleas? Do you know all of the moving parts in this universe from the biggest of the big to the smallest of the small? Do you see it all? Because I do. And I'm working every single detail, every bit of human will and every bit of evil and every bit of things that are going on. And I'm working them all for my good purposes. And so there are just times where we don't get to see the whole puzzle, but he does. And I remember sitting in a connect group with, with a group of guys and we were going through something similar to this. And one of the guys in the group, he just said, you know, I'm in, I'm in this place of, I just don't even know if I could believe in God anymore because I've been having these crazy panic attacks. These are these things where I just feel like I'm going nuts. I'm in the darkest place of my life and I'll cry out to God and I feel like I hear nothing. And all I can think is if God claims to be a father, I would never do that to my kids. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you know what this person's talking about from experience. And in that moment, all I could think to say was not, well, you know, you should probably know that God's working all things for your good, buddy. Here's the theological reasons. No, in that moment, all I could think to say was, you know what? I'm not exactly sure why you're going through what you're going through, but I will say this, you're not alone. Jesus went through the same thing. You may have never thought about this, but Jesus had one prayer in his life that was never answered. It was not answered with a yes. 
Let's look what, it, what that prayer was in Matthew chapter 26. It says, Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Right here, verse 39. He went on a little further and bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. I just want you to know, God did not take the cup of suffering away from Jesus. He answered with a no. And so what was Jesus' response? Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. There are times where you will feel abandoned by God. Guess what? Jesus felt that way on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never have to be abandoned by God. And so even if you feel like God is distant, remember, think about Jesus because Jesus reminds us that he was distant from Jesus so he wouldn't be distant from us. There are times where God will say, I need you to take this cup. And there are times where we have to say, not my will, but thy will. And so today, as we close, I just wanna pray over you. I wanna pray over every person here that is wrestling with any of these questions or any of the millions of questions that go on in our minds. But I wanna pray that God would speak to you and minister to you right where you are today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have answers to every question we ask. And I may not have represented them perfectly today, but I do thank you that you are on the move and you are working in people's lives. And I'm just praying that you would continue to give them perspective to understand the season they're in. God, there are many people in here who are dealing with the heartache of prayers that didn't feel like they were answered. They're dealing with the heartache of feeling like their love has been rejected. They're dealing with the heartache of feeling like they don't even really know who you are. And I just thank you that you're here today and you're gonna minister to people. Long after this message is over, you're gonna be ministering to hearts and minds so that people can find their truest fulfillment in you. If you don't mind, just keep in the attitude of prayer for just a moment. I wanna invite anybody in this room or watching online or in Boardman or TCI who has never come into a personal relationship with Jesus, I wanna invite you into a relationship with Him. Jesus called it becoming a disciple. You follow Jesus, you say yes to Him, knowing that it could cost you everything. But it is only, willing when, you, it is only when you are willing to sacrifice everything that you realize that everything you had before Jesus was nothing at all. Jesus says, if you give me your life, I'll show you true life. And today I wanna to invite you into this relationship with him where he, he brings you into the family of God. He wipes away all of your sins, all of your transgressions, all of your mistakes, and he floods you with grace and mercy that transforms you, makes you a new person. It, it makes you as clean as you could possibly be. And right before God, he gives you eternal life so that just as he conquered the grave 2,000 years ago, you can do the same. So if you're ready to respond to him, all we're gonna do is a little, say a little prayer that basically says yes to him. And as you pray this, I just want you to take what faith is in your heart and offer it to him and know this, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we're gonna pray this prayer together. And as we do, I want you to offer up your faith to God. Church, would you help me pray so no one prays alone? Say this, say, Jesus, I need you. I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Right now, I repent. 
I turn to you. I ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, I believe you're God. You died for my sins. You rose to life again so I could have life with you. You're the Lord of my life. You're the King of my life. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There are a couple things I'd love for you to do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps us spread the word and impact more people. You can also help us see others connected to God by investing today at believers.cc slash give. And if you want updates on all things Believers Church, check out believers.cc or follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram or search Believers The Connecting Place on Facebook. The best way to connect with BC is live and in person at one of our weekend worship experiences. We have locations in Boardman and Warren, and you can get the service times and plan your visit at believers.cc. Thanks for tuning in to the BC Podcast. Thank you.